The reason I want to open up with a letter of Jonathan Edwards to James Robe, um, this is in volume 16 of the L edition of his works, but this gives you an idea of what somebody who is really, what do we call a scientist of Christian counseling in an experimental level, the wisdom that Edwards gained because of what he observed during the Great Awakening. So this is a letter It says, It can scarcely be conceived of what consequence it is to the continuance and propagation of a revival of religion that the utmost care be used to prevent error and disorder among those that appear to be the subjects of such a work and also that all imaginable care be taken by ministers and conducting souls under the work and particularly that there be the greatest caution used in comforting and establishing persons as being safe and past the danger of hell. Now you wouldn't hear this often. Modern counseling people are under awakening. You hardly hear people that are really under awakening in our day. But by 1744, whenever this was written, Edwards had already seen a lot of people that had made a profession apostatize and go back to the world. And so what he's expressing is a caution and what he had gleaned from this and what he would do in the future. He says, there needs to be the greatest caution used in comforting and establishing persons as being safe and past the danger of hell. Many among us have been ready to think that all high raptures are divine. Raptures, feeling, emotion are divine. But experience plainly shows that it is not the degree of rapture and ecstasy, although it should be to the third heavens, but the nature and kind that must determine us in their favor. It would have been better for us if all ministers here had taken great care diligently to distinguish such joys and raised affections as were attended with deep humiliation, brokenness of heart, poverty of spirit, mourning for sin, solemnity of spirit, a trembling reverence towards God, tenderness of spirit, self-jealousy and fear, and great engagingness of heart after holiness of life, and a readiness to esteem others better than themselves, and that sort of humility that is not a noisy, showy humility humility, but rather this which disposes to walk softly and speak tremblingly. And if we had encouraged no discoveries of joys, but such as manifestly wrought this way, it would have been well for us. So he is lamenting. He is concerned. And Edwards was cautious anyway. Compared to many other pastors, Edwards would have been very, very cautious. So if I understand the history, he got to where he was a person came to his office for counseling, they would relate what they believed was their conversion experience. And Edwards would listen and he got to where rather than saying, yeah, I believe you've recently been converted, he would say, this is a good beginning, but we want to see perseverance as a fruit that will mark that this work has indeed been a work of God. So he was very, very cautious as a result of what he had witnessed, not to give anybody uh, false hope. He didn't want them to be 
discouraged. He didn't want them to go away thinking they may not be converted, but he said, uh, well, I'll read them himself and you can pick this up. And I am persuaded we shall generally be sensible before long that we run too fast when we endeavor by our positive determinations to banish all fears of damnation from the minds of men, though they may be true saints. If they are not such as are eminently humble and mortified in what the apostle calls rooted and grounded in love, Ephesians 3.17. It seems to be running before the Spirit of God. God by His Spirit does not give assurance any other way than by advancing the things in the soul. And so this is very close to what he said in his introduction to a treatise on the religious affections, part three, where he said that the best evidences of the new birth are the fruits of it that are manifest in the light. And when a person is in a backsliding state of declension for a continual time, he will lack the discernment to examine his own case to see whether or not he has been brought from death unto life. And he won't begin to have assurance until he starts seeing the fruits of the Spirit being manifest. He says, when love is low in the true saints, they need the fear of hell to deter them from sin. Now, when I was discussing mortification of sin, remember I said that the fear of hell is the lowest motive to flee sin. You want to flee sin by evangelical motives, and it should have joy in it. Repentance should have hope. But if they are in a bad way, in a state of declension, this motive does have its place. And we have to understand it is really kind of a last resort. It's a warning. Look, you're not safe if you continue in this state of backsliding and declension because you don't have the evident fruit that you can examine in your life to see that you've been passed from death unto life. So he says, therefore a wise God has so ordered it that love and fear should rise and fall like the scales of a balance. When one rises, love, love to God, love to your neighbor, the fruit of the Spirit, love. When one rises, the other falls. What falls? The fear, the spirit of bondage and fear. As there is need, or as light and darkness take place of each other in a room, as light decays, darkness comes in, and as light increases and fills the room, darkness is cast out. So love, or the spirit of adoption, casts out fear, the spirit of bondage. And experience convinces me that even in the brightest and most promising appearances of new converts, it would have been better for us to have encouraged them only as it were conditionally after the example of the apostle in Hebrew 3, 5. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. In Hebrew 3.14, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. In other words, a false convert, a hypocrite, somebody who's still unregenerate will forsake his confidence and time he will go back to the world like the stony ground here. And then he says, and after the example of Christ in Revelation 2 verse 10, be thou faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life and in many other places. It is probable that one reason why God has allowed us to err is to teach us wisdom by experience of the ill consequence of our 
heirs, end quote. So one of the books that I'm going to get into in this study that's going to be very, very helpful to go through is a book that I've often quoted here called Cases of Conscience, Samuel Pike and Samuel Hayward, 1755. And as I've said in these classes before, that book between 1755 and 1859 was never out of print because there was a demand for these kinds of work. They were the science theologically is called Christian casuistry. And I'll just give you one example of one question that they answer. It was a couple of Presbyterian pastors in a church that brought people in on a Saturday night and they had the questions written out before them because they were written in letters and they had answers that they would read. And this is just one question. And this is the type of things that we want to get into. Quote, Reverend Sir, I am a person who have for some years been a professor follower of Jesus. I've had a place in his house, enjoyed great privileges, and have advantages above many, sitting under a sound, faithful, and tender minister. But under these means of fruitfulness, I, alas, seem barren and unprofitable, and I am afraid to go backward in religion and make advances in sin. And what is worse, my heart is so hard that I do not mourn over these declensions as I ought. And therefore, fear I am not properly affected with them. No sooner does a temptation offer itself, but I fall in with it so that I often think whether my refraining from gross immoralities is not more for lack of temptations than from a real hatred of them and love of holiness. And yet I hope I sincerely strive and pray and resolve against sin in Christ's strength, being convinced that I have none sufficient on my own. But can I sincerely do this and fall into sin so frequently? I attend on gospel ordinances, but I fear to little purpose being cold and lifeless under all. I hear the love of Jesus sweetly displayed, but this icy, frozen heart is not melted. These languid and lifeless affections are not raised nor fixed upon the dear Redeemer. I cannot call him, so he's having some doubts. I cannot call him my Redeemer, lest I should be deceiving my own soul. And yet I dare not say I have no part in him, lest I should be ungrateful and deny his work in quote. Well, I can assure you they receive a letter like that. They go through it and they say this is very, very consistent with a Christian life. He will have these times when he is saying, according to Romans 7, 14 to 25, that which I would, I do not, but the evil that I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. And then he comes to the uh, lament in Verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? A Christian will have these kinds of lamentations. It's a hypocrite that doesn't. It's a false convert that doesn't know this law warring in its members. So that's from Cases of Concert, uh, Conscience Answered in an Evangelical Manner at the Casuistical Lecture in St. Helen, Bishop Gate Street, Samuel Pike and Samuel 
Hayward. In the introduction to that 1859 edition, and this is when the last edition came out and then it went out of print, but the guy who wrote the introduction was glad. He was joyful to see that this book was continually, continually being in print and these type of subjects were relished. But that was the end of it, 1859, and it says here, It has been supposed that the class of subjects discussed in the following pages excites less interest in the church now than it did at a former period, that the present age has contributed only a few works to the department of casuistical, that's the term they use, casuistical theology, to which this book belongs, must be considered. Preeminently a book-making age, it is not in keeping with the spirit of time to publish works on experimental religion. So we're going to use that book. We're going to go through that book. And I believe that a lot of this is going to be guided by the questions in our discussion time. I was deeply affected with the questions Jason had last time when we were talking about temptation to fornication, to lust, to pornography, or whatever. How do we know if we've entered into temptation? And I don't think that I spent an adequate and got deep enough into his question that was what made me pretty sad. I said, we need to spend more time doing this. So the book that we're going to have as a foundation Archibald Alexander Thoughts on Religious Experience, which originally came out in 1841. That's just a standard that gives us a guide to go by, but there are certain things in that are definitely worth discussing in that book. And I told you I first found that book. I was in a Christian bookstore down in Alexandria, Louisiana in 1984, and I was looking for The Bruise Read by Richard Sibbs, and somebody overheard me. We got to talking. He put that book in my hand. I looked at chapter four on melancholy, and I I said, boy, this looks interesting. And so I bought two books that day. And this book uh, was absolutely essential for me down in the Bible Belt. I just did not have good works to sort me out. Who could I talk to at the level that I was with a burden pressing on my back like Christian trying to find a wicked gate? So let me introduce you very quickly to who Archibald Alexander was because in a way he's kind of a spiritual father to me. He was American Presbyterian theologian and a first professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. So when he became the professor, there were like 12 students and he taught that first year all of the classes. He served for nine years as the president of Hampton Sydney College in Virginia and for 39 years as Princeton Theological Seminary's first professor from 1812 to 1851. In 1791, he was licensed to preach, ordained by the Presbytery of Hanover, that would have been Virginia, on June 9th, 1794, and for seven years was an itinerant pastor in Charlotte and Prince Edward counties. Well, why is that important? And this is what's so interesting to me is your main professors at Princeton Theological Seminary in the year 1812 all had been pastors before they were theologians and you find in their writings this pastoral element that I believe you had some after the first generation of Princeton but what happened is Princeton Seminary became more academic and the pastoral 
office became more separated from the seat of the theological professor. And you find it in their writings that there's not the same kind of experimental depth. So I want to just tell you very quickly about his conversion. At the early age of 17, Archibald Alexander left his father's house. So sometimes they would go to a master, a teacher, somewhere where they could continue their education. Public education wasn't as common then. He became a private tutor in the family of General John Posse of the wilderness in the county of Spotsylvania. The family residence was in a very retired situation where a few persons of wealth had valuable estates. Among these, visits were frequent, but few other persons came into the neighborhood. About this time, General Posey had a mill built on his plantation, and the millwright was a Baptist by the name of Waller, brother, I think, of a famous Baptist preacher called Jack Waller. I often talked with this man, Archibald Alexander says about his business and other matters but one day he unexpectedly turned to me and asked whether I believed that before a man could enter the kingdom of heaven he must be born again. Now this guy was raised in a Christian home and he's being asked do you think a man needs to be born again before he can get into heaven? I didn't know what to say for I had for some time been puzzled about the new birth. However, I answered in the affirmative. He then asked whether I had experienced a new birth. I hesitated and said, not that I know of. Ah, he said, if you had ever experienced this change, you would know something about it. Here the conversation ended, but it led me to think more seriously whether there was any such change in my life. Seemed to be in the Bible, but I thought there must be some method of explaining it away. For among the Presbyterians, it shows a state of declension that the Presbyterians were in Virginia at the beginning of the 19th century. He had never heard of anyone who had experienced this new birth, nor could I recollect ever to have heard it mentioned. This became about the same time a subject of discussion at the table after old Mrs. Tyler had withdrawn, especially on Sunday. She loved the writings of John Flavel, the Puritan, and could not but desire to make them known to the youthful Presbyterian inquirer. As her eyes were weak, her eyes were failing her because she was older, she often sent for him to read to her, a request with which he complied at first out of courtesy and afterwards from some increase of interest in the author. Learning that Flavel was a Presbyterian, he took pains to discover what were his views of regeneration. He had never read anything upon the evidences of Christianity, though he knew of infidel books in the hands of other young men he had never read them feeling no interest in the argument so he continues his story my services as a reader in other words this old lady her eyes were fell and she loved flavel and this young man is now living with this tutor she asked if he would read to her. So, my services as a reader were frequently in requisition, not only to save the eyes of old Mrs. Tyler, but on Sundays for the benefit of the whole family. On one of these Sabbath evenings, I was requested to read out of Flavel's works. A part on which I had been regularly engaged was the method of grace. But now, by some means, I was led to select one of the sermons on Revelation 3, verse 
20. Now, in his work, that isn't titled, but we've come to title it, Christ knocking at the door of sinner's heart. But the verse says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and so on. The discourse was upon the patience, forbearance, and kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ to impenitent and obstinate sinners. As I proceeded to read aloud, the truth took effect on my feelings, and every word I read seemed applicable to my own case. Before I finished the discourse, these emotions became too strong for restraint, and my voice began to falter. I laid down the book, rose up hastily, and went out with a full heart and hastened to my place of retirement. No sooner had I reached a spot than I dropped on my knees and attempted to pour out my feelings in prayer. But I had not continued many minutes in this exercise before I was overwhelmed with a flood of joy. It was transport such as I had never known before and seldom since. I have no recollection of any distinct views of Christ, but I was filled with a sense of the goodness and mercy of God, and this joy was accompanied with a full assurance that my state was happy, and that if I was then to die, I should go to heaven. This ecstasy was too high to be lasting, but as it subsided, my feelings were calm and happy. It soon occurred to me that possibly I had experienced a change called the new birth. So, now we will just do an introduction to the work that's going to be the foundation of the study, Thoughts on Religious Experience. And this, when I was first reading this in 1984, my vocabulary was so deficient. I really, really struggled to get through this word. But I knew, because I read chapter 4 first, and it so described my case, that I said, I'm not going to get this kind of instruction down here in the Bible Belt. I have to learn to where I can read all of these words and the vocabulary. I know that I need to become very familiar with this book. So it opens up. There are two kinds of religious knowledge which, though intimately connected as cause and effect, may nevertheless be distinguished. There, These are the knowledge of the truth as it is revealed in the Holy Scriptures and the impression which that truth makes on the human mind when it is rightly apprehended. Say it again. The impression which that truth makes on the human mind when it is rightly apprehended. The impression is Christian experience. What happens as a result of the truth upon individuals is called Christian experience. But he said, the first may be compared to the seal on the wax. The Bible is a seal. The seal makes its impression on the wax. When that impression is clearly and distinctly made, we can understand by contemplating it, the true inscription on the seal more satisfactorily than by a direct view of the seal itself. Thus it is found that nothing tends more to confirm and elucidate the truths contained in the word than an inward experience of their efficacy on the heart. It cannot therefore be uninteresting to the Christian to have these effects as they consist in the various views and affections of the mind traced out and exhibited in their connection with the truth and in their relationship to each other. He says that can't be uninteresting. To study the impression the Bible makes on the 
mind and on the heart. He said, you would think that would be interesting, and in that day it was. And brethren, I'm telling you, I will have been a Reformed Baptist for 40 years next June. The study of Christian experience is very seldom taken up as a class. Revival itself is very seldom studied. But a real in-depth analysis of Christian experience and the Christian warfare and sanctification and spiritual declension and so on, you would think that this would be interesting to professing Christians, but I found that it isn't necessarily the case. But for me, it so much was because I was under awakening for three and a half years before I really had any kind of a strong assurance of salvation. So the study of what I was going through in my own experience was absolutely essential to me to ever have any kind of joy and peace. The complete and perfect knowledge of the deceitful heart of man is a prerogative of the omniscient God. I, the Lord, search the hearts and try the reins of the children of men. Psalm 7, 9, Revelation 2, 23. But we are not on this account forbidden to search into this subject so far as is from being true that we are repeatedly exhorted to examine ourselves in relation to this very point. And Paul expresses astonishment that the Corinthian Christians should have made so little progress in self-knowledge. Examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize it's about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. 2 Corinthians 13.5 If genuine religious experience is nothing but the impression of divine truth on the mind by the energy of the Holy Spirit, then it is evident that the knowledge of the truth is essential to genuine piety. Error, error, deviations from the Bible, defections from the Bible truth, error never can under any circumstance produce the effects of truth. This is now generally acknowledged, but it is not so clearly understood by all that any defect in our knowledge of the truth must, just so far as the error extends, mars the symmetry of the impression produced. Now that's the introduction. We'll look very quickly at the beginning of chapter 1. Early religious impressions, chapter 1, thoughts on religious experience. These are just the topics he's going to discuss. Different results, classes of people who are least impressed by the truth, and examples of ineffectual impressions. Ineffectual. They're hearing the word, and the word may come with some power from the pulpit, but it is ineffectual in the here. The Holy Spirit must make the word alive and must apply it to the mind and change the heart. So he says, there is no necessity for any other proof of native depravity than the aversion which children early manifest to pious instruction and to spiritual devotions. From this cause it proceeds that many children who have the opportunity of a good pious education learn scarcely anything of the most important truths of Christianity. If they are compelled to commit the catechism to memory, they are accustomed to do this without ever thinking of the doctrines contained in the words which they recite from memory. So that when the attention is at any time awakened to the subject of religion as a personal concern, they feel themselves to be completely ignorant of the system of divine truth taught in the Bible. Yet even to these, these young children, the truths committed to memory are now of great utility usefulness. 
they are like a treasure which has been hidden but is now discovered. Of two people under conviction of sin, one of whom has had sound religious instruction and the other none, the former will have an unspeakable advantage over the latter in many respects. Many children, and especially those who have pious parents who speak to them of the importance of salvation, are the subjects of occasional religious impressions of different kinds. Sometimes they are alarmed by hearing an awakening sermon or by the sudden death of a friend of their own age, or again they are tenderly affected even at tears from a consideration of the goodness and forbearance of God or from a representation of the love and sufferings of Christ. There are also seasons of transporting joy which some experience, especially after being tenderly affected with a sense of ingratitude to God for his wonderful goodness in sparing them and bestowing so many blessings upon them. These transient, they're transient, sometimes they feel them and they pass on. These transient emotions of joy cannot always be easily accounted for, but they are commonly preceded or accompanied by a hope or persuasion that God is reconciled and will receive them. In some cases, it would be thought that these juvenile exercises were indications of a change of heart did they not pass away like the morning cloud or early dew, so as even to be obliterated from the mind which experienced them. Another quote. We know very little, however, of what is passing in the minds of thousands around us. The zealous preacher often concludes and laments that there is no impression on the minds of his ears. He looks out on the congregation. And he doesn't know if he's making any impression on them. When, if the covering of the human heart could be withdrawn, he would be astonished and confounded at the variety and depth of the feelings experienced. Those impressions which manifest themselves by a flow of tears are not always the deepest, but often very superficial. While the most solemn distresses of the soul are entirely concealed by a kind of hypocrisy which men early learn to practice, to hide their feelings of a religious kind from their fellow creatures. A man may be so much in spiritual despair as to be meditating suicide when his nearest friends know nothing of it. There are some people who grow up to manhood without experiencing any religious impressions except mere momentary thoughts of death and judgment. And these may be people of a very amiable disposition and moral deportment. And these very qualities may be in part the reason of their carelessness. They don't commit any gross sins. The remembrance of which wounds their conscience, being of a calm and contented temper and fond of thoughts from the truth when it is presented to them from the pulpit. Some people of this description have been awakened and converted at mature age and have then confessed that they lived as much without God as atheists and seldom if ever extended their thoughts to futurity. Of course, they utterly neglected secret prayer and lived in the midst of gospel light without being in the least affected by it. There is moreover another class who seem never to feel the force of religious truth. They are such as spend their whole waking hours in a giddy whirl of amusement or company. Full of health and spirits and optimistic in their hopes of enjoyment from the world, they put away serious reflection as a very bane of pleasure. The very name of religion is hateful to them and all they ask of religious people is to let them alone. 
that they may seize the pleasures of life all within their reach. If we may judge from appearances, this class is very large. We find them in the majority in many places of fashionable resort. The theater, ballroom, and the very streets are full of such. They flutter gaily along and keep company with each other while they are strangers to all grave reflection, even in regard to the sober concerns of this life. If a pious friend, good Christian friend, happens providentially to get the opportunity of addressing a word of serious advice to them their politeness may prevent them from behaving rudely but no sooner is his back turned than they laugh him to scorn and hate and despise him for his pains they habituate themselves to think that religion is an awkwardly foolish thing and wonder how any person of sense can bear to attend to it very often though this high reverie of pleasure is short in such a world as this events are apt to occur which dashed a cup of sensual delights while it is at the lips. Death will occasionally intrude even upon this mirthful circle and put a speedy end to their unreasonable merriment. Oh, how sad is a spectacle to see one of these votaries of fashion suddenly cut down and carried to the grave. When mortal sickness seizes such people, they are very apt to be delirious, if not with fever, yet with fright. And their meddlesome and cruel friends make it their chief study to bar out every idea of religion and to flatter the poor dying creature with the hope of recovery until death has actually seized his prey. Such an event produces a shock in the feelings of survivors of the same class, but such is a buoyancy of their feelings and their forgetful of mournful events that they are soon seen dancing along the slippery path with as much and same thoughtlessness as before. Now, if I can bring it up, I'm only going to read some of the table of contents so that we have some idea what to look forward to, and then I'll open it up for discussion. But these, I mean, how does this not become interesting to anybody? who wants to know about the Christian life. So we just did a quick look at chapter 1, early religious impressions. Chapter 2, piety and children. Comparatively few children are renewed in infancy and childhood. The soul awakened in different ways. Legal conviction, he's saying. Legal conviction, not evangelical conviction. A law work is not a necessary part of true religion. Chapter 3, the new birth an event of great importance. The evidences of the new birth, diversities of experience in converts, and causes of why there is such diversity in Christians. Chapter 4, causes of diversity in experience continued, and this is the one that was so helpful to me. Effects of temperament, melancholy, advice to the friends of persons thus affected, illustrative cases, causes of melancholy and insanity, chapter 5, effects of sympathy, illustrated. I discussed sympathy when we were discussing revival, and we'll get with that again. Chapter 6, erroneous views of regeneration, the operation of faith, the exercises of mind, and then he goes into Jonathan Edwards' narrative from the book, Thoughts. I mean, uh, a narrative of many surprising conversions, which that book just is, you know, when you consider written from a 32-year-old man, it's just, um, his analysis is just so profound. Chapter 7, consideration on dreams. Does God ever bring to us uh, something that could warn us through dreams? 
Remarkable conversion of a blind infidel from hearing the Bible read, chapter 8, religious conversation, stress laid by some on the knowledge of the time and place of conversion. In other words, some people put a stress on this that you should know the time of your conversion, you should know the time of your experience, and he's showing why that stress is misguided. The ex religious experience of Thomas Halliburton, of all of the awakening cases I have read, I have narrated, I don't know any more full in the Christian history than that of Thomas Halliburton, who was a Scottish pastor who actually was born on Christmas Day. And then I'll just read a couple more. A number of people's Christian experience in this these chapters are really good. Imperfect sanctification and a spiritual warfare. The spiritual conflict, Satan's temptations, evil thoughts, and a case and illustration. Amazing story of some guy that was so plagued with constant blasphemous thoughts or vain thoughts and how God brought him out of that. And I've had to use that with people in my Facebook group, Thoughts on Christian Experience and Assurance, who their mind just uh, in their waking hours hardly gives them any break. Another excellent chapter, Growth in Grace, Signs of It, Practical Directions How to Grow in Grace and Hindrances to It. Chapter 14, Backsliding, a Backslider Restored. Chapter 15, The Various Trials of Believers. And then the rest of the book, believe it or not, is on the deathbed of the believer. And then gives the examples of people's deathbed experiences. And then preparation for death and the state of the soul after death. And in the more expanded edition that the Banner of Truth did, uh, there's a section in there, Councils of the Aged Christian to the Young, which is just masterful as well. And I remember the last council was, let go of your too eager grasp of this life and become familiar with death, grave. You're not going to escape it. Put your mind upon it sometimes. Realize it's a reality and then be prepared heard for it. So anything that you'd like to ask, Michael? Um, actually, I had a number of questions, so I have to figure out how to, how to phrase this, but um, related to the, the way he described what Christian experience is, that it's the impressions that, uh, that are made upon us as the truth is applied to us and, and as we um, read the word. So that would if that's true, that assumes that it's really not possible to have a religious experience outside of, right? You, it can't bypass the mind, right? It's not like the spirit is going to work upon you, bypassing your mind in some way, right? To produce religious experience in you. In other words, it's not like, um, I mean, I don't know. I well, guess we're talking about we're talking about spiritual experience, okay? So we're talking about the effects of the word upon your mind. However, there are a number of things that God uses in awakening people who are obdurate hard-hearted, caught up in the cares of this life that don't necessarily have to have the word to. However, they cannot be effectual as a means to the end of their conversion. Huh? But many people are affected by seeing a loved one die or an earthquake that comes or something that frightens them. So it can have an awakening tendency and it can cause fear, but those are what we call legal fears. Legal meaning the moral law, which is written upon the conscience, Romans 2, 14 and 15, becomes awakened 
because of these providences, even though the word doesn't come from the preaching, because the law is written in our hearts, the conscience can, by something that happens outside of us, stir up the fears, but those fears in and of themselves may be the beginning of an awakening process, but they don't necessarily have to be. But for the for this to be a Christian experience, it has to be by the whole word of God making its impression on the mind, the affection, and the will. And as we examine what, remember, experience is how the mind, the will, and the affections affect the body. Because the human physiology, the mind, and the will, and the affections in the body are so closely related that the spirit doesn't make an impression on the mind, the will, and the affections without somehow our body partaking of that. So um, I sh- it's not as if I should... In order to, to grow in my Christian experience, if there are certain things that I feel like I'm lacking in, then the proper means to go about that is to, well, study those things in the Word. Yeah. That's what God's Spirit will use to increase yeah. my experience. For example, let's say it's uh, joy or something. Yeah. It's not a matter of, well, I'm going to be praying for this and God is just going to somehow do it, I guess, apart from, from working through the Word. Your best, your absolute best model is Psalm 119. Psalm 119, only the first eight verses are bringing light and commandment from that into what is it? One Psalm 119, 167 is prayer. Uh, Psalm 119, 32, enlarge my heart that I would walk in the ways of your commandments. Is, is, um, is Christian experience then, in some sense, very similar to the same way we experience anything? something makes an impression on our mind and of course we as humans then respond with a certain emotion to whatever it is that we're, we're uh that we're taking in is it is it like that or, or, or it can see it can be mixed with a lot of things that are natural and carnal but, but the experience that we aim for is that which produces the fruit of the spirit now if you have love joy and peace it will affect you physiologically as well but, but like um so first of all, you got the fruit of the Spirit, and then you have the effects of the fruit of the Spirit upon the mind, the will, and the affections. That's the experience. And the result of that should be carrying these things out in practice. First, you have the fruit of the Spirit, which results in Christian practice. So you're saying the fruit of the Spirit, the effect of it, for example, let's say joy, the effect of it is what Christian experience is in that regard in terms of how you're, how you're feeling in that emotion. Yeah. That would be the Christian experience. Yeah. So, like, Christian experience is not like this separate, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but it's not like some, uh, hype, like, spiritual thing going on where your soul is, you know, yeah. feeling something. I don't know if that makes sense, but, like, it's, it's outside. It's, like, in the same way that you could be impressed by some truth and you experience that. And it's the same thing with Christian experience. The truth of God's word impressed on your mind produces certain experiences. But if there's anybody that would be able to tell you how people try to work up this experience apart from the word, it would be Adam and Terry Clark from the near background. Yeah, I wanted to to interject there, but I wasn't wasn't sure on uh, which direction you wanted to go next. But uh, I I think I probably could answer your question. Um, I don't, maybe anybody couldn't answer it perfectly, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll try my best. So, uh, when we were 
being raised in church experience was not what you're trying to explain, which is uh, just, it, it can look, uh, from the outside, it looks like just a, an average, everyday, carnal, if you may say, um, effect of uh, emotions upon the body. That, that, would, that would be how I would say Christian experience actually works. When you feel joy, mm -hmm. you, there's not some uh, transcendent, um, like, weightless, yeah. almost mystical yeah. feeling. That's what so much of the Christian church nowadays teaches as Christian experience. Yeah. That's this, this, this elation, this constant walking in this mystical world this is where you're where god is always speaking to you verbally and you're you're constantly receiving these new revelations you're you go to church and you're you feel like you could float off of the ground and because that's what christian experience is taught to be we see modern churches doing things in their church services uh, with as far as music and lighting and um psychology if you want to you could, you could kind of unpack that to entice those feelings well and let, let me build on that what because sure. yeah. when we're talking about true christian experience we're talking about what the word of god does upon the spiritual man if a person is unregenerate and he's coming to the worship services you experienced all around you they know that they should be experiencing something and so they have to use other things other than the word to work up that feeling so you have maybe far more contemporary worship service uh you got people claiming to be slain in the spirit and all that and so they're trying to generate as an unregenerate person, what the Holy Spirit creates as the Word makes its impression on the mind and the will and the affections. And what's so amazing about that is they can say, I'm having all of these experiences, but if they're unregenerate, they're having these experiences while they're still at enmity against God. So uh, maybe a more pointed example of this would be, uh, there's, I have family members who you can... There are certain things you can talk about, um, such as um, music. Uh, we're talking about worship music, like Christian, so-called, quote-unquote, Christian worship music. Um, very like like dreams uh, is a big thing. Uh, what they would call like premonitions or unctions, feelings. Some people might just simply call them call that uh, intuition, and they like to talk about those things all the time. In, the, in a Christian context, but if you try to talk about the glory of Christ, it's like mm. they have no idea what you're, what you're talking about. Well, because about. if they're unregenerate, they actually have no affection for Christ. It's like they know that sin is sin. Like pride, lust, envy, greed, uh, adultery, stealing, lying, and the list goes on and on. Like those, those are sin or attributes of sin. There, there are sins in themselves as well. But... And then they would recognize those as sin, but when you again talk about the what sin actually is, which is an, an, an affront yeah. to the glory of the Lord Jesus, it's just like there's no there's no folder for, for those people to put that in. Because that was what I would consider that a very that's religious experience. When you feel the weight 
Yeah, right. So very few of these people would have a confession that they're fellowshipping with you of Romans 7, 14 and yeah. 25. They're not going to come. No. Brother, I, I don't know what it is. Man, I got so much light and I, I pray and yet I fall. And uh, yeah. I happen to have a letter that was written to me this week and this lady, there's this Facebook group I didn't even create it on uh, fears that you've committed the unpardonable sin. And of yeah. course, my name got mentioned. And so as I tried to explain what it is not because so many people are under this delusion. This lady said, can I write to you privately? She writes this lengthy thing and it's just sad that she believes that God gave her light to do this. She felt that she wanted to be a nurse here and she believes God is talking to her and that because she's not following the spirit, she believes that she may have been abandoned. So let me just read this because this is so good for charismatics. Jonathan Edwards, Revival, Thoughts on the Present Revival of Religion, Adoption of Wrong Principle. He says, one erroneous principle that which scarce any has proved more mischievous to the present glorious work of God is the notion that it is God's manner in these days to guide his saints at least some that are more imminent, listen, by inspiration or immediate revelation. They suppose he makes known to them what shall come to pass hereafter or what it is his will that they should do by impressions made on their minds either with or without text of scripture in which something is made known to them that is not taught in the scripture. By such a notion, the devil has a great door open for him. And if once this opinion should come to be fully yielded to and established in the church of God, Satan would have opportunity by this to set himself up as a guide and order oracle of God's people, and to have his word regarded as their infallible rule. And so to lead them where he would, and to introduce what he pleased, and soon to bring the Bible into neglect and contempt. Late experience in some instances has shown that the tendency of this notion that you're receiving prophecy, direct revelation from God, is to cause persons to esteem the Bible as in a great measure useless. This error will defend and support errors. As long as a person has a notion that he is guided by immediate direction from heaven, it makes him incorrigible and impregnable in all of his misconduct. For what does it signify for poor blind worms of the dust, like ourselves, to go to argue with a man and endeavor to convince him and correct him that supposes he is guided by the immediate counsels and commands of the great Jehovah? This great work of God has been exceedingly hindered by this error and until we have quite taken this handle out of the devil's hand, the work of God will never go on without great clogs and hindrances. Satan will always have a vast advantage in his hands against it, and he, as he has improved it before, so he will do so still. And it is evident that the devil knows the vast advantages he has by it that makes him exceedingly loath to let go of his hold. I just thought that was so profound. Jonathan Edwards' thoughts on the present revival. Because this, is, again, like the letter that I wrote at the beginning, he's looking back in uh, treatise on the religious affection, but especially the thoughts on the present revival about some of the mistakes that he saw that went on and led people into enthusiasm, like James Davenport that I yeah. talked about. Do you have anything, Brian? <laughs> How much time do we have? I'm still trying to process so much of it. That, but I, I feel like what he just described there is a whole lot of what we just saw in that cessationist movie. <clears throat> and I think one of those things, one of the points one of the guys made in that movie, which I, affects me the most, is when you hear stuff like that later, oh, that's what makes you so angry about people 
being taught like this because it gets them so they're so unstable. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. You get so unstable in that mm -hmm. situation, and you're constantly you're getting you, you get tossed to and fro. Yeah. Know? Well, so my main goal in this class isn't in, to be polemical. I'm not going to address those errors so much. I want to help people who are grounded in our confession. And they're not getting these questions answered from the pulpit. And so we're going to open up and we're going to enlarge on these things uh, more and more because I think that that's really, there's a great need for that. And we need to discuss these things. And well, I think it's, it's something that just naturally comes about because if you were raised in a confessional, say just Reformed Baptist context, a lot of these questions, at least the, the questions that would arise from coming from a charismatic background, they just never come up. Now, of course, you know, uh, feeling, you know, being under awakening or coming, uh, being uh, under great conviction or fearing that you've committed the unpardonable sin, now that could happen in, in a Reformed Baptist context, but um, Victoria and I were, were talking about our children, Adeline and, and Eleanor, and when we watched that cessationist movie, it was like a trip down memory lane, sure but, for, for, but for them, they were just floored, especially Adeline, she's old enough, she can... She can kind of understand the like the wildness of yeah. some of the manifestations, you know, falling out when somebody slings their coat at you. Um, but I've been in in services where that has been practiced: yeah. the blowing, the the pouring oil on your hands and laying it on people's heads, and these people speaking in tongues miraculously, so called. And so I've been there and walked through it. I'm making a point. I'm not trying to build myself up. I'm trying to be a. I'm trying to make a comparison. But I look at my children who have never seen that. They've never been in that context to know when you're when you're in the midst of that. It's so real, Tom. Yeah. Because you're just, you're steeped in it. You were raised in it. Your parents yeah. were in it. Your all your friends are in it. Your all your whole family in it. It's, it's tangible and it's so real. Well, see, I've been, I wasn't in it long term, but I've been enough in it that I yeah. have worked with some of the things. I was actually at Madison Square Garden in New York City when Jimmy Swagger came there. You and sure that there were people running up and down the yeah. pews. And the, but, but the thing that is really going to be helpful here for this study is it's really important that we have a basic foundation to yeah chapters in our confession. Number 10 on effectual calling, regeneration, the new birth, and number 11 on justification, and we have to keep these things separate. Justification is a forensic term, deals with the court, we are criminals, God is a judge, uh, because of the substitutionary curse bearing, we are now free. Regeneration is a work that is done on the mind and the will and the affections, because we not only had a bad record, he has to deal with the uh, bad heart that's regeneration and so on and in our day i can assure you that so many of the problems that we see going on and uh i guess there's now a movement this way within reformed circles where the doctrine of the new birth and regeneration are really not prominent they're just not and so so sanctification flows out of regeneration because regeneration the dominion of sin 
since she'll no longer have dominion over you, Romans 6.14, and you have a new life, you're not perfected at that moment. That perfection goes on through this life and that. And what we want to study is, we want to know the foundation of the new birth regeneration. What are the fruits of it? And do I see them in myself? But also, what does that look like in my life? And when I'm struggling and when I fall and that I don't want to unsaint myself, I don't want to start this whole process over. Is my fall consistent with being born again and we want to see how it is and then what it looks like and then try to get help for those who are struggling and uh, one thing that is so essential is accountability and that's why you know when I got to know I love to see that hunger within you do do you think this is something that happens uh, organically um, not coming from from a background, not, not me or my family, but people that were raised in a, in a Reformed, particularly Reformed Baptist circle, um, do, you, do you think those questions are just answered organically because of the framework they're taught from a, from a young age that, when, that they, don't, they might not necessarily have the questions of like a certain religious experience? Yep. Uh, do you think that is one reason why we don't see it taught on very much? Because it just the questions are answered organically. Does that make any sense? Well, I'll, I have my own theory, and if you hear me out, you may understand that. Okay. Um, what I and I've listened to the pastors' testimonies and so on, including Sam Brand and the pastors who were in Grand Rapids. Typically, they're raised in a Christian home. Uh, a lot of times, they don't really know the day of their conversion. They know very little about what experimentally Christian is going through with that burden on his back and find, falling into the slough of despond. They never knew anything about a slough of despond. And so they don't have a real interest into something they really can't relate with. That's why both Pastor Martin and Pastor Waldron, when they get questions, at least since I've come here, um, they'll pass them down to me because they know that I struggle a lot longer in my awakening. And so this is why I studied these things. So I had to sort myself out. Man, it's amazing what you will do if you are afraid you're still going to hell. And it's amazing what people will do to go out of their way to figure out how they can contact me if they know that I'm able to be able to sort them out. It started in 1985, the first person that came up to me with these kind of fears. Uh, because I had went through this for eight months in 1983, and so I just made it a point to study anything and everything I can know on this subject. But what is interesting to me is that typically the people that were raised in the Christian home don't know the day of their conversion, don't know anything about an awakening that are not naturally drawn to this kind of study. I am, because of what I went through, I know the fears, I know the pain, I take such an interest in people that are going through it because I know I know what it's like to be horribly afraid. Right. And people get very, very desperate. What I've learned is you can't help everybody. But there's a lot of people out there that I can help. And one of the ways I do this is I don't think that I'm that great a counselor to sort this out. Uh, I have somewhat a, a very retentive mind and I've read so much that I can refer to them and find things very, very quickly that are applicable to the. In the case of this lady that wrote to me this week, I quoted her, uh, Jonathan Edwards, 
I quoted that part. I said, first read that. And then I said, I recently narrated a chapter from Pike and Hayward's Cases of Conscience. And the question is, how do I know if a thought that is impressed on my mind that is hopeful or threatening is from God or the devil? We don't ask questions like that anymore. These guys answered it so masterfully. But we're not asking those questions anymore because we're a lot more superficial. But because of the depth of what I went through, this is why I started taking an interest in this. And I've narrated this book cover to cover probably three times, at yeah. least twice. And um, I still redo a lot of this stuff, try to get a better recording. But, Is it in uh, print right now? Can... Yeah, yeah. So gracegems.org, and I put the link in our Facebook okay. group. Um, gracegems.org, you go under the books, uh, authors, books, and then by author, alphabetically, okay. come to Archibald Alexander, and every one of those chapters are right there. So, you know, the books, there is still a demand for it, but um, a, a lot of people I talk to have never even heard of it. And But, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that we could even be having this discussion. we got to start somewhere. And, you know, David Phillips is here primarily because for 11 years he was under some pretty intense spirit of bondage and fear. And he's often said to me, Tom, you need to create some kind of a bibliographical database of some of the things that you have read. And um, rather than doing that, I thought if I could teach classes that people will listen to, they're going to hear. My Pilgrim's Progress study I did in 2017 has a huge bibliography because I wanted to illustrate every character that I expounded on by something in a real life experience so that they could say this isn't just a land of make-believe it's not just an allegory that doesn't really have anything to do with the present christian life but to yeah to read and i dug hours and hours through old presbyterian theological journals on melancholy on spiritual depression and so on because they wrote so well on these things the command of the english language alone has changed so much. I, I know that because people come up to me and they say, look, uh, I got this book. It's in Kindle format and I've tried to read it. I don't have the vocabulary. Would you be willing to narrate it? And it was just your typical book out of the 1850s. Very, very excellently written. It happened to be The Mother at Home by John. But John Abbott wrote this book, The Mother at Home. It's just powerful book but a lot of people even in our own congregation cannot read a book written for teenagers from the 1830s 